Section 3 of the Byzantine Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa. The Byzantine Empire, the Rearguard of European Civilization by Edward Ford. Chapter 3. Theodosius II to Justin I. Reorganization. A.D. 408 to 527. Regency of Anthemius. Reign of Theodosius II. Pocaria, Eudocia, Persian and Hunnic Wars, Intervention in the West, Chrysaphius, Hunnic Invasions, Religious Troubles, Pulcheria and Martianus, Revival, Repulse of Huns, Council of Chalcedon, Leo I, Zeno, Decline of Barbarian Influence, Anastasius I, Internal Reforms, Isaurian and Persian Wars, Revolt of Vitalian, Justin I, Justinian, his character and curious marriage, his accession. The death of Arcadius in some sense synchronizes with the passing away of the epic of barbarian influence. Such a general statement, of course, must only be considered as partially correct. Barbarian influence continued to exist for a very considerable period at Constantinople. The Alan Magister Militum Ardeburius and his son Aspar were powerful, and later showed signs of becoming dangerously so. But though Aspar may perhaps be reckoned in the same category with Stilicho and Risimer, he never really exercised their commanding influence. Neither can it be said with any truth that the Ostrogoth chieftains Theodoric, with whom we shall presently become acquainted, had much chance of dominating the empire, though they certainly appeared likely at one time to establish a Teutonic kingdom in the Balkan peninsula. The darkest day of the later Roman Empire has passed, and with Theodosius II we enter upon a period of transition to the epoch of reform which was to bear its part in the burst of energy under Justinian I. The Praetorian prefect Anthemius proved himself worthy of his dead master's unexpectedly wise choice. No taint of self-interest marked his conduct, a feature so rare as to deserve special mention though Anthemius had done nothing else worthy of record. Such, however, was far from the case. He concluded an advantageous commercial treaty with Persia, when Uldes, king of the formidable Huns, invaded Mysia, he drove him across the Danube and protected the border by systematic refortification, supported by a flotilla on the great river. He set on foot measures for resuscitating the wasted Illyrian provinces. He reorganized the corn-supplying machinery of the capital and traced out and in large measure constructed new fortifications for the capital, nearly a mile in advance of the walls of Constantine, thus well-nigh doubling the size of the city. But his greatest glory was that in 414 a general remission of arrears of taxes for forty years 
from 368 to 408, was proclaimed. To the burdened tax-paying classes, who must have been overwhelmed with their obligations, this cannot but have been of inestimable benefit. The great prefect died in 414, but it was clearly his influence, if not his actual personal order, that was responsible for the boon. He had conferred another benefit on the empire by the careful education which he had caused to be imparted to his imperial charges. Theodosius II, indeed, was only a little less of a non-entity than his father, but his sister Pulcheria, two years his senior, was a very different person. On the death of Anthemius, possibly or indeed probably by his influence and advice, she was proclaimed Augusta, and took up the reins of government in the name of her brother, being then only fifteen years of age. Women mature earlier in the East than under our own cloudy skies, and Pulcheria was not so young as her scanty tale of years might seem to indicate. But there is something infinitely touching in the spectacle of this girl taking up her terrible burden of empire at an age when even Eastern women were thinking of the enjoyments of youth. Pulcheria took religious vows, and remained a virgin to the end of her life, her marriage at the age of fifty was merely nominal. It may very well have been a genuine religious impulse, but seeing that her sisters Marina and Arcadia both followed her example, and that the daughters of the fiery Eudoxia were hardly likely to have been devoid of human passion, it more probably originated in the desire of the Augusta to remove herself and her sisters beyond the reach of ambitious aspirants to their hands. The latter theory is at once the more probable and the more honorable. It is more probable because Pulcheria never secluded herself. She toiled diligently at state business all her life and she assuredly had little leisure for ceremonial mortification of the flesh. She did what few women could do or have done. She kept her vow of virginity in the world. It is the more honorable because monachism is too often another name for mere selfishness of the worst sort, a desire to save the individual soul with utter disregard of anything else. Pulcheria's vow was for the good of humanity. Had she remained free, she might well have been a center for plots against her brother. Her self-abnegation secured the peace of the Roman world in the East. Her motives were indeed religious in the highest and noblest sense of the word, since her object was purely unselfish the benefit of her fellow creatures. In all her life there is not a sign that she ever took herself into consideration. She toiled only for her brother. Her existence was a long self-denial. More than once it must have been very like a martyrdom. Her sisters, who followed her example, have every right to share in her fame, though they do not appear to have mingled to any extent in public life.
the long reign of Theodosius the Younger was on the whole peaceful. Its great monument was the Codex Theodosianus, which was commenced in 429 and completed in 438. Its inception may be set down with certainty to the credit of Pulcheria and the senators who worked with her at the task of reorganizing the empire. The value of a systematic codification of the laws needs no emphasizing. The Augusta is said also to have set her face steadily against the corruption of the court. Here, however, she was face to face with an Augean stable, and her efforts to cleanse it were only partially successful. She failed, as any woman in similar circumstances must fail, to see the crying need of military reorganization. The Roman armies continued to be assemblages of barbarian federati and mercenaries, led by barbarian or half-barbarian chiefs like Ardiburius and Aspar, whose fidelity was always doubtful. Yet for the present there was no trouble. The house of Theodosius was popular with the Teutons. The Augusta's personal influence may have counted for much. At any rate, there is no hint of mutiny during her reign. We must always remember that Pulcheria owed much to the precepts of Anthemius, and we do not know how much of her policy was really his. But in any case, she deserves credit for intelligently carrying it out, and the glory of having kept her weak brother steadily in a dignified course of action for many years is all her own. Pulcheria very early in life had taken into her friendship a Greek girl named Athenaeus, who had fled penniless from the persecution of her brothers at Athens to seek the protection of the young Augusta. Athenaeus was a daughter of the philosopher Leontius. She was also a pagan, a fact which is worth recording to show how far removed Pulcheria was from bigotry. The young Athenian was converted to Christianity and baptized by the name of Eudocia. Theodosius fell in love with her, and in 421, being then twenty years of age, he took her to wife. He was so much influenced by his sister that we must assume the marriage to have had her strong approval. There is every reason to believe that she had been a good friend of the beautiful pagan, who had in her need cast herself at her feet years before. In after years there was disagreement between the imperial ladies, but there is nothing to show that there was any political reason for it. The children of the Union, except a daughter who bore her mother's name, died young, and in 444 Theodosius separated from Eudocia and exiled her to Jerusalem. The story grew up in after years that the Empress was guilty of a criminal passion for Paulinus, one of the great court officials, but the story of the Phrygian apple which Eudocia received from her husband, only to pass it on to her lover, probably belongs to the region of romance. At the same time, the story is found in several Byzantine historians, and there was probably some reason for the divorce by a normally good-natured man of the wife with whom he had lived for twenty years. In 421 war broke out with Persia. It lasted for two years and terminated in favor of the empire in 422. Its cause had really been the persecution of Christians carried on by King Bakram, 
and its successful issue strengthened the prestige of the empire in the east, which had declined since Jovian's ignominious peace in 363. But next year, before the main body of the army had returned from the Persian frontier, the Huns broke into the Balkan peninsula and ravaged the whole country north of Adrianople. The government, unable to repel force by force, could only adopt the ignominious policy of buying them off by a yearly subsidy of 700 pounds of gold. The reason was that the army was needed for an expedition into the Western Empire, but the precedent was a bad one. In the West, Honorius had died in 423. The government was seized or assumed. It must always be remembered that there was no definite law of succession by Johannes, the primicerius or first secretary. Placidia, stepsister of Honorius, and widow of his colleague Constantius III, was at the time living in Constantinople, whither intrigues at Ravenna had forced her to retire, and she now claimed the crown for her son Valentinian. The eastern army, under the Ardabirius, entered Italy, and though he was himself shipwrecked and taken, his son Aspar stormed Achilleia, and Ravenna was surrendered without resistance. Johannes was captured and executed. The Eastern Empire was to receive as guerdon for its aid Western Illyricum, the session to take place when Valentinian should be of age to marry Eudocia, the daughter of Theodosius. It was clearly wise policy to get as much of the shattered empire as possible added to the still vigorous eastern portion, but the Illyrian provinces were so wasted as to be of little value, and their possession by Theodosius was never more than nominal. Valentinian III and Eudocia were duly married in 436. The young emperor was probably the worst of the line of Theodosius, vindictive, incapable, and faithless to a wife who seems to have loved him only too well. The marriage, however, marked the high-water mark of the prosperity of Theodosius II, and also the culminating point of the influence of Pulcheria. There were always men who challenged her primacy in her brother's regard, but soon after 436 we begin to hear more and more of the eunuch Grand Chamberlain Chrysaphius. It was perhaps by his machinations that Eudocia was separated from her husband. It is certain that Pulcheria's hold on her brother was becoming relaxed. The last ten years of the reign of Theodosius II, during which the ambitious eunuch was steadily becoming supreme, were dark and disastrous. An expedition against the Vandals, now firmly established in Africa under their great king Geyseric, ended in ignominious failure, and in 441 Attila, king of the Huns, burst into the Illyrian provinces. He stormed every fortress along the Danube but one, and for several years worked his will in the Balkan peninsula. Three Roman armies perished in Thrace and Mesia. Seventy cities were stormed and ruined. Negotiations were opened with the victorious barbarian in 443, but they soon fell through, and Attila, practically master of the waste that had been eastern Illyricum, might have looked forward to the sack of Constantinople. 
In 447 came the final blow. At the end of January, an earthquake occurred in Eastern Europe and Asia Minor. Many cities suffered severely. Great part of Constantinople was ruined, and nearly the whole of the landward wall with 57 towers was overthrown. The danger was appalling. The Huns were in Thrace. The loss of Constantinople would mean the end of all things for the empire, but the wild energy of the people saved the state. Every craftsman in Constantinople was set to labor on the fortifications. The city deems supplied 16,000 able-bodied citizens as laborers. In 60 days the wall of Anthemius was repaired and defensible, and a second rampart under construction in front of it. The city could not be easily taken now, even if the defenders had been less numerous and desperate. Attila was not destined to enter either old or new Rome. But though Constantinople was saved, Theodosius and his ministers could not save themselves from the necessity of ratifying humiliating terms of peace. Attila was to retain the southern bank of the Danube. The Hunnish prisoners and deserters were to be sent back. Roman captives to be ransomed at twelve pounds of gold a head. Six thousand pounds of gold were to be paid at once and an annual subsidy of 2,100 pounds. A great empire could hardly have descended to lower depths of ignominy. Matters were little better at home. The eunuch Chrysaphius was all-powerful at court. Pulcheria had long been growing more and more helpless, and probably in 447 she withdrew into private life. Arcadia had died in 444, in 449 Marina followed her, and during the last year of his life the emperor was alone, divorced from his wife, estranged from the sister who had sacrificed her best years for him, far distant from his daughter in the west. Now religious strife was added to his troubles. It had been in 431 necessary to hold a synod to deal with the heterodox patriarch Nestorius. Now, in 449, the Monophysite heresy of Eutyches, which maintained the existence of a single nature only in the personality of our Saviour, raised its head. Chrysaphius was the godson of Eutyches, and the synod held at Ephesus to inquire into the question was packed with Monophysites, who maltreated Flavian, patriarch of Constantinople, and finally carried their point by sheer force. Leo, the famous pope of Rome, whose legate Hilarius barely escaped with his life, aptly termed the meeting the Synod of Robbers. But Theodosius confirmed its decision and rent Christendom in twain. It was well that the domination of the evil eunuch was drawing to a close. In July 450, Theodosius, while following the chase, was thrown from his horse and so terribly injured that he was carried back only to die. 
as he lay in agony, his thoughts turned from the fawning eunuch, who had been his evil genius, to one who in the best years of his reign had been ever at his side, who to serve him had foregone her hopes of motherhood. He sent for Polcaria, and when she came to the imperial chamber where the angel of death waited, the dying emperor made his peace with the sister who had served him so faithfully, and solemnly commended her to the senate as his successor. A female ruler was an unheard-of thing in Roman annals. Pulcheria chose as her colleague a tried soldier and administrator, the patrician Martianus, whom on August 24, 450, she solemnly married. The marriage was but a formal one. Both bride and bridegroom were past middle life. Pulcheria would hardly break her vow. The nuptial ceremony was the sign of the comradeship of these two fine characters in their appointed task of reviving the apparently moribund empire. Their first act was to repudiate the disgraceful treaty with the Huns. It was a bold act, but it met with the success which sometimes waits on the brave. Chrysaphius was summarily put to death. Every effort was made to heal the schism in the church. Eutyches was degraded, and in 451 a general council was held at Chalcedon, by which the Monophysite heresy was solemnly condemned. The Huns made an inroad into the empire in 451, which was repelled with ease. It was probably only subsidiary to the gigantic invasion of the West which Attila carried out in this year, and which Aetius, Roman general and patrician, and Theodoric, king of the Visigoths, turned back on the Catalonian plain. In 452 an alliance was effected with the Western Empire, and next year Attila's last invasion, in which he desolated northern Italy, was finally checked by Aetius. By the intercession of Pope Leo, as legend declares, by the aid of the reinforcements which Martianus had sent to the West as it appears in the sober light of history. If he really had Rome at his mercy, as we are required to believe, Leo could never have saved it. No one would rob the noble bishop of his glory, but Aetius and Martianus must receive their due. Pulcheria died on September 11th, 453. Martianus survived her for a little more than three years, busy until the last in the work of reorganization. On the murder of the wretched Valentinian III in 455, he became the legal head of the entire empire, but he was too wise to assume direct control over the ruinous West. He accepted as colleague Avitus, who on the murder of Maximus, the successor of Valentinian, was preferred to the imperial diadem by the army and the Visigoths in Gaul. He made efforts to repeople the Balkan provinces by settling colonies of brave barbarians, hostile in feeling to the Huns, in the devastated lands along the Danube. After the sack of Rome by Gaiseric in 455, he sent in succession two embassies to Carthage to endeavor to procure the release of the unhappy Empress Eudocia and her daughters. 
both failed in their object, and Martianus was preparing for war when he died in January 457. He is said to have been poisoned by Aspar, but he had certainly been in failing health for some time previous to his death. Be this as it may, Aspar undoubtedly did make a serious effort to play the part in the East which Rissimer was acting in the West. His Aryan tenets made it somewhat difficult for him to seize the crown, possibly he lacked the requisite resolution and unscrupulousness, but his control over the army rendered him for the time all-powerful, and he procured the election as emperor of Leo the Thracian, a man of considerable capacity but the head of his own household. The new emperor, however, showed himself possessed of independence and firmness, and manifested no signs of subordinating his policy to the ideas or ambitions of Aspar. He drew closer to the anti-Teutonic party in the empire. He married his daughter Ariadne to Zeno the Asaurian, one of its leading members, and set himself quietly to reorganize the army by enlisting many new regiments from among the native populations. In 463 Zeno was created Magister Militum per Orientem, and the control of one of the strongest armies of the empire was thus in the hands of a faithful friend. Still, Leo showed no unkindness or ingratitude to Aspar. He made his son, rather unwillingly and tardily it is true, Caesar, and the Allen general continued to be the foremost figure in Constantinople, where he lived in great state for many years. But Leo steadily abstained from permitting him any great military command. In 467 the emperor, who had in 462 succeeded in obtaining the release by Gaiseric of the unhappy empress Eudocia and her younger daughter Placidia, sent a great expedition against the Vandals. It totaled about 100,000 men of all kinds, and 1,113 vessels. The total of the actual landing force may have been about 30,000. It was a far larger force than that which, 66 years later, was to conquer the Vandals. But Leo's distrust of Aspar induced him to give the command to Basiliscus, the incompetent brother of his wife Verena. The expedition was completely defeated, and its huge cost crippled imperial finances for a generation. In 471, Aspar met his end. It is probable that he had been plotting against the emperor, for Leo would hardly have proceeded to extremities without good reason, though it is true that the cause of his action may simply have been that these Allen soldiers were dangerous subjects. At any rate, Aspar and his son, the Caesar Ardaburius, were executed, perhaps we should say assassinated. Two younger sons of the general were spared. Leo's action was politically justifiable. He certainly showed no unnecessary lust of blood, but it cost him much of his popularity in the capital, where men called him in consequence Michaelis, butcher. 
In the same year we hear of a victory of the Roman army in Pontus, probably over a Hunnish host which had come round by the eastern shore of the Euxine. The rest of Leo's reign appears to have passed in comparative peace. His financial administration was directed to relieving, as far as possible, the burdens of the taxpayers, and on the occasion of a severe shock of earthquake at Antioch he was quick to extend aid. His military measures have been noticed. He maintained the cause of orthodoxy in the church, and for this reason, presumably, obtained the undeserved title of great from his ecclesiastical panegyrists. He died in 474, aged 63, leaving an empire decidedly improved in condition and prospects to his infant grandson, Leo II, the son of Zeno the Assarian. It was clear that the imperatorship of Leo II was but nominal. With Zeno and Ariadne all real authority was certain to rest. The child was induced to formally abdicate in favor of his father, which probably was what the late emperor expected, though he does not seem to have cared to offend his wife Verena and her brother Basiliscus by formally naming the Asaurian his successor. Verena in 475 raised a revolt in the capital and set up Basiliscus as emperor. Zeno was forced to fly with his wife and his mother Lalis to Asaria. After a time the tide turned in his favor, and in 477 he was able to defeat the rebels and re-enter his capital. Basiliscus and his family were immured in a Cappadocian fortress, where they died of hunger and cold, and Zeno got rid of other dangerous persons by assassination. The last stronghold of the rebels, long beleaguered, was finally taken in 484. For the greater part of his reign, Zeno was troubled by the Ostrogoths. Zeno took the great Gothic chief Theodoric, afterwards king of Italy, into his service, but in 479 he resolved to be no longer a traitor to his countrymen and united their scattered bands against the empire. In 483 Zeno conciliated him by conferring on him the title of Magister Militum, just as Arcadius had tried to conciliate Alaric. But he soon broke out again into hostility, and in 487 marched on Constantinople. He met with no success, however, and in 488 Zeno got rid of him by making him a grant of Italy. The series of ephemeral rulers in the West had ended in Italy with the deposition of Romulus Augustus in 476, and Adovacar, the barbarian magister militum, declined to accept Zeno's suggestion that Julius Nepus of Dalmatia should be emperor of the West. He formally acknowledged Zeno as supreme emperor and sent him the regalia from Ravenna, but proclaimed himself king in Italy. Zeno had therefore a legitimate casus belli, according to Roman ideas, and he now by this clever move 
theoretically brought the West again under his direct rule and freed Balkania from the Germans. Theodore defeated and murdered Adavakar and ruled Italy and Western Illyricum for 33 years. Actually, he was independent. In theory, he was the Roman patrician governing the prefecture of Italy in the name of the empire. Zeno's last years were passed in peace. He was never popular. He was regarded, like the rest of his countrymen, as no better than a barbarian. Footnote. His true Isaurian name was Terrasicordisa, that of his father, Rasambulotus. End of footnote. And the favor which he showed them exasperated the pampered Constantinopolitans. His financial policy was not successful, but we must remember that he had the Goths on his hands, though no doubt his lavishness to the Isaurians increased his difficulties. He was not a favorite with the Orthodox Church party owing to his efforts to conciliate the Nestorians and Monophysites. The real work of his reign, in which he was entirely successful, was the formation of a native army. He died in 491. His children had all predeceased him, and the supreme power devolved on his widow Ariadne. On April 11th, the Empress chose as her colleague Flavius Anastasius of Dyrrachium, one of the Silentiaries, a guard of nobles which formed the Emperor's personal escort, and six months later formally espoused him. Personal liking may have had something to do with what appears to have been an unexpected choice. Anastasius, a man of handsome presence even in age, with brilliant unlike eyes, may have attracted the notice of the empress. But he was otherwise well fitted to wear the crown. Ariadne's choice offended the Asaurian entourage of the late emperor, headed by his brother Longinus and the magister militum per Illyricum of the same name. They raised a revolt in the capital, which was only suppressed after severe fighting. The brother of Zeno was taken and tonsured, but the Magister Militum escaped to Isauria and called his wild countrymen to arms. They advanced 100,000 strong on the capital, but were defeated at Cotieum in Phrygia. In 493, the Isaurian fortress of Claudiopolis was stormed. In 494, the rebels were badly beaten close by, but it was not until 496 that the revolt was finally suppressed, though it had long ceased to be formidable. In 493, the Slavs made an inroad into Thrace, and in 499 and again in 502, the Bulgarians also invaded the empire. To protect the suburban districts of the capital, Anastasius in 512 drew a wall across the Thracian peninsula about 30 miles from Constantinople. Disturbances on the Syrian frontier in 498 were successfully put down, and the commercial entrepot of Jotaba in the Red Sea, which had been lost in the reign of Leo I, was recovered. 
In 502, after a peace of eighty years, war once more broke out with Persia. That great Oriental Empire had been for many years involved in troubles with a Central Asiatic horde known as the Hathel or Epthalite Huns. They were at present more or less quiescent, and the activity of Anastasius on his eastern frontier alarmed King Kobad. In 502, the Persians captured Martyropolis and Theodosiopolis, and next year Amida also. The Roman troops had become unused to regular warfare, owing to their guerrilla experiences in Asauria, and seemed unable at first to cope with the Persians. A victory which they gained at Nisibis was offset by two Persian successes but in 504 the main Persian force under its king was beaten at Edessa, and the Roman army recovered Amida and ravaged the Persian border districts. Meanwhile the Huns invaded Persia, and thereupon Kobad made peace, restoring his trifling conquests. Three years later Anastasius built a strong fortress city on the site of Dara, a Mesopotamian village. It was only a few miles from the Persian frontier stronghold of Nisibis, which it was calculated to watch, and constituted a continual eyesore to the Persians. Anastasius, though at the outset of his reign he had been popular, soon lost favor with the population of the capital. His care for the finances caused him to be accused of miserliness, while his religious sympathies were monophysite, thus exposing him to the often openly expressed dislike of the city factions. His religious heterodoxy probably had something to do with the rebellion of Count Vitalian, a grandson of Aspar, which broke out in 514. Vitalian inflicted a great defeat on the imperial forces at Odessus in Thrace, and the emperor, now in extreme old age, tried to conciliate him by creating him Magister Militum per Thracius. In 515 Vitalian was outside the capital, but his fleet was beaten off Chrysopolis, and he retreated to the Danube. A raid of Huns in the same year into Asia Minor did some damage, but had no permanent results. Anastasius died in 518 at the age of 88, after a reign of over 27 years. His financial policy had been highly beneficial. He reformed the curial system, and the taxes were henceforth farmed by imperial officials, thus guarding against the defrauding of the treasury by curials and provincial governors in collusion, while the interests of the taxpayers were protected by the formation of a new body of officials called defensores. Given that the latter did their work honestly, the system was not a bad one. It was certainly less harsh and unjust than the curial order of things. Anastasius sternly checked the peculation rife among the civil officials, and so has been misrepresented by at least one of them, who wrote in later years, and like most officials, whatever their department or degree, wrote rather as an official than a patriot. But his greatest reform was the abolition of the Chrysargiron, which was hailed with universal joy. 
The emperor expended large sums in public works, but despite all these expenses and the cost of the wars which troubled his reign, he left a treasury reserve of 320,000 pounds of gold, about 14 million pounds sterling, an army in which the native element decidedly outbalanced the foreign mercenaries, and the empire in better order, on the whole, than it had been for a century and more. Anastasius left no children, but had two nephews, Hypatius and Pompeius. They were men of little merit. Hypatius was discredited in the public eye by his bad conduct at Odessus, where he had been defeated by Vitalian. Amantius, a eunuch of the court, perhaps designed to place one of them on the throne, and approached Justinus, a brave but illiterate veteran who commanded the imperial guard. He placed in his hands a large sum with which to bribe the officers under his command. Justinus used the money to secure his own elevation, and when he came forward he was accepted willingly by senate and army. He reigned for nine peaceful years, and followed on the whole in the steps of Anastasius except in religious matters. In spite of his want of instruction he was certainly no non-entity. His nephew Justinian was his colleague during the greater part of his reign, but it was not until after the old emperor's death that he broached his schemes of conquest. Vitalian was conciliated and made consul, but died soon after, assassinated, so the gossips of Constantinople insisted, by Justinian. The latter was consul in 521 and entertained the population of the capital with magnificent shows and games. Thenceforth he was practically his uncle's colleague. Justinian, the son of Justin's deceased brother Sebatius, was a staid personage of over thirty, much given to deep study. One of those men whom the present age dubs old-fashioned, nobody, people said, could ever recollect him being young. His natural abilities were not, probably, above the ordinary, but his powers of application were considerable, and he was a tireless worker. His attainments in law were unquestionably very great, and he had considerable aptitude for theology. He had the ability to form great and far-reaching designs and the perseverance necessary to carry them out. He had no military knowledge. In consequence, his vast plans were often very badly executed, and he seems to have lacked the discrimination of character which is absolutely necessary for the complete mental equipment of a despotic monarch. He was soon to amaze people by committing the very last action which would have been expected of him. In 526 it was bruited abroad in Constantinople that the grave, serious, old young Caesar, the student and thinker whose knowledge was so tremendous that, according to the ignorant dwellers in the poorer quarters, he was often seen walking about without his head, was in love with the beautiful dancer Theodora, whose reputation was really too dreadful for words. The theatrical profession at this day has not the best of reputations with certain classes, but it is savory compared with that which it bore in the Roman Empire in the year 526. It is possible today for an actress to escape the imputation of having at some time or other slipped in the mire of immorality, but under the pagan Roman Empire actresses were either slaves or prostitutes or both and whether they were invariably the latter under Christian rule or not, they were usually so regarded. The delight of scandal-mongers, 
when the news of Justinian's love affair spread abroad, may be imagined. A love affair it certainly was. What other reason for such an occurrence can there be? If the Caesar needed a beautiful partner, he could take his choice of hundreds of lovely candidates, with advantages of birth and breeding which Theodora cannot have had. She was probably poor. Her profession was regarded as disgraceful. Justinian knew that he must meet condemnation on every hand, that he could not even legally marry her. He was certainly not too old to know deep and passionate love. It may very well be, to the writer it appears so, that his passion for Theodora was the single powerful human emotion that ever affected his peculiar, coldly intellectual temperament. Theodora was the daughter of Acacius, an attendant of the Hippodrome at Constantinople, and her first public appearance is said to have been after the death of her father, when she and her two sisters wandered round the arena begging the charity of the spectators. Thereafter she had become a public dancer, and, as dancers did and do, doubtless often performed in scanty attire. Quite possibly she did not escape the contagion of immorality. Procopius probably lies in his bitter secret history, but there must have been some foundation for his tales, though slander often rests on a very slender basis of fact. In 526 she was a young widow, with one or two little children, short of stature, slight and delicate of appearance, pale-faced but superlatively lovely, with wonderful expressive eyes. Justinian announced to his uncle and mother his intention of wedding Theodora. They bitterly opposed him. The old emperor threatened to disown him, but the stubborn Caesar, to whom love had come so late, remained steadfast, and at last prevailed. Theodora's personality would seem to have completed the victory, for she was ennobled by having the title of patrician conferred upon her, a strange step for the old emperor to take unless he had convinced himself that she was not the foul creature that she was represented to be. It would have been so easy to have solved the difficulty by quietly executing a woman who was little more than a slave, that it is difficult to believe that Justinian's mother, at least, was not convinced of her comparative innocence. At all events, the deed was done. Justinian took to wife the dancing girl of the circus, and ere long had every reason to be thankful. In April 527 he was proclaimed Augustus, thereby formally becoming his uncle's colleague, and in August the aged Justinus passed away. End of section 3